Hey everyone, just a quick note. This episode was recorded before the pandemic. I'm not currently interviewing anyone in person, but I've appreciated your comments and stories about comforting music the last two months as we go through this together. Remember, you can send me an email at classicalbreakdown.org. And if you haven't already, make sure you are subscribed. And if you can, leave a review. Okay, that's it. Stay safe and enjoy. I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by National Symphony Orchestra Principal Flute, Aaron Goldman, and we're talking all about the flute. Like, where did it come from? How did it evolve? And he plays a couple of flutes that you've probably never heard before. He also tells me about his journey in music and the perseverance it takes to win an audition with a major symphony orchestra. Welcome, Aaron Goldman. Uh, being principal flute of the NSO, I feel like you are the perfect person in town to talk about all things flute. Well, I'm happy to be here, and I'm always happy to talk about flute. So the flute is something, it's an instrument that everyone's heard, from orchestra to band, Latin and jazz, and now with people like a singer-songwriter, rapper Lizzo. You know, it's it's something everyone knows. But is there like an actual definition of what is a flute? So it's very interesting. There are flutes in almost every culture around the world, and each one of them has its own version of the flute. So at its most basic level, a flute is a hollowed-out tube with holes in it. So that could be a whole slew of different things. Some of the earliest flutes that have been found, uh, there was a flute made of a bear, the bone of a bear. This was found in a cave from about 43,000 years ago. There was a vulture bone flute found, let's see, 35,000 years ago in what is now Germany uh, during the last Ice Age. So uh, flutes are everywhere. You have some side-blown flutes. Some of the first instances of those were in China about 9,000 years ago. So, and side-blown is what people think of today when, you know, you hold the instrument to the side of you and you're blowing across it. Exactly. So some of the earlier flutes were held in front of you somewhat like a uh, recorder yeah. would be. Uh, side-blown flutes uh, are more like the way you imagine a flute now, and you would blow across a hole. There are flutes, panpipe flutes that you imagine, you know, you've all seen the panpipes. In Southeast Asia, they would take the panpipes and wrap them around so they'd be in a circular way, but still basically panpipes. Uh, there's the Japanese shakuhachi flutes. Uh, but all of, these, all of these flutes basically are the same thing, a hollowed-out tube with various numbers of holes in them. So if, there's, if it's a hollowed-out tube with holes in it, where is the sound actually coming from? When you think of, like, trumpet, you know, the sound comes out of the bell, but with the flute and all the holes and everything, where is it coming from? So the physics of the flute works uh, in all of them in a very similar way. With any blown tube with a hole in it, you have air going past a sharp edge. In this case, if you imagine a side-blown flute, uh, you see the embouchure hole, and as you blow air past the, the hole, on the far edge of the hole, the air goes mostly out of the tube and then gets sucked back into the tube and then out of the tube and into the tube very quickly, and that's how we create the standing wave in the flute. That's where most of the sound is coming, and a little bit further down with your fingers are, or 
or at the end? So it's very interesting. The majority of the sound of a flute comes out of the very first open tone hole. So if you can imagine a simple flute with maybe four holes in it, if you cover the first two holes, most of the sound is coming out of the third hole. Now, it's an important concept because as the flute developed, especially in the Baroque era, into the modern flute that we have now. Like in the 1600s to 18 and 1900s? Yeah, so basically the the Baroque flute of the time of Bach uh, was a simple one-keyed flute. It was called, we call it now a traverso. And one of the issues is if you only have six holes on a flute, how can you play all 12 chromatic notes? It's very hard to do. Yeah. So you had to use what are called cross fingerings. So cross fingerings end up closing down some of the holes below the first open tone hole. So it creates strong notes, which are fully vented. So there are no holes covered below the first open hole. And then what are weak notes where you have to close down some of the keys below the first open note. So uh, to play a G, for example, on a Baroque flute I'm holding in front of me, I would use my first three fingers. And to play a G sharp, I open up the first one on the left hand and cover the two on the right hand. So I have two closed holes, an open hole, and then a closed one, an open one, and a closed one, which makes the sound a little weaker and a little softer. I can demonstrate that if you'd like. So this first one is a fully vented, strong G. And then to play a G sharp, so there's a difference in tone there. So in all of these changes, were thought actually to give the Baroque flute most of its character and color. They liked that. They thought it really made the flute sound the way a flute should sound. So if you're in a D major key, it's nice and easy and everything is nicely vented. If you go to further keys from D major, the flute starts to sound a little funnier. And composers would take advantage of that. So were they all in D? Or maybe you'd have like one, like for a horn, you can put different crooks in to make it into a couple of different keys. So most of the standard Baroque flutes were in D. Uh, They would often have, so the Baroque flute comes in three different pieces. You have the head joint part that you blow into, the middle piece, and then the, the end piece. The middle piece would often come, the joint would come in different sizes. Wherever you would travel around in different cities, the pitch of whatever city you're in would be very That's different. Right. So they would travel around with a bunch of different middle joints and fit in the one that best fit with the other people they were playing with. So we've evolved from bones of bears and birds you find in the woods to this um, Baroque flute that's wooden, um, no keys, just the holes for your fingers, and you can change out the middle part to maybe get a different um, uh, key. So what is this? What is that Baroque flute made out of? So these would have been made out of a whole slew of different materials. Most often it would be wood, but there were some made of ivory. There were some made of crystal, uh, but mostly they were made out of wood. And they changed actually through the Baroque period into the classical period. So composers were putting greater and greater demands on their poor little flutists. So uh, in order to play, we think of say, some of those Beethoven symphonies, which on a Baroque flute, as I'm holding now, we have a taper towards the end, which makes the lower notes a little bit weaker, and the upper notes 
just by nature of them, to get them out on this instrument would be louder. So Beethoven came along, and he decided he wanted us to be able to play really loud in the low register and really soft in the high register, and he didn't really care that people had a very hard time doing it on this. But as the time went on, as people were futzing with the flutes, they started to add more and more keys, and they would change the taper of the bore. So the bore would get a little bit bigger. They would add, usually by the time Beethoven was writing his symphonies, there would be eight or ten keys on this instrument uh, that just made the cross-fingerings a little bit less, but there were still some cross-fingerings, so there would still be weak notes and strong notes. And it's an interesting thing to think about whenever we play Beethoven, Mozart, Haydn, uh, even Bruckner and Mahler and Wagner. I think of playing them on a on an old... <laughs> older flute with only eight or so keys. Yeah. And they would have many choices as to which keys to use to get the notes out. So you could play Beethoven, like say there was a little solo in Beethoven, you could play it more well-vented using some of the keys and it gives it a stronger character. Or you could use the simpler cross-fingerings and it would just have a totally different character to it. So when did it go from this wooden flute to this one in front of you, front in front of you, which I assume is your modern flute, which is made out of? It looks very shiny. It looks very gold. I'm nervous being in the room with it. Tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah. So uh, the big year for flutes was 1832. Theobald Böhm made his first redesigned flute after hearing a flute soloist who had a huge sound. It was he was touring around. Europe and blowing everyone away by how much sound you can make. And Theobald Bohm went back to his shop and decided he was going to make a flute that could play as loud as as the solo flutist Nicholson. So he had the idea, he put on more keys, and the idea was to fully vent the flute so there would be no cross-fingerings. So fully, fully vent, that means after your fingers, whatever, are pushing the hole, it's open all the way down? It's open all the way down. So he made what he wanted to be a flute loud enough to compete with Charles Nicholson. So uh, that happened in 1832. Now, he redesigned it again in 1847 to make it out of metal, and he also changed a few things between those two designs. But basically, the modern flute that we play today hasn't changed much from 1847 Bohm's design. So actually, I have... uh, a few gold flutes, well, two really. Uh, I have one which is a 24 karat gold flute made by uh, Muramatsu. Uh, Japan was a company in Japan who makes incredible flutes, and uh, they're one of only a few flute makers that are making flutes out of 24 karat gold. Uh, I think really it's a very special instrument. Uh, the other gold flute that I have is a 14 karat gold flute. Uh, made by Brandon Brothers in Boston. Actually, Boston is a, a hotbed of flute makers. There are many flute makers who are based out uh, in Boston. So Brandon, when I was in high school, was the very first professional flute that I that I bought. So I have a special place in my heart for Brandon flutes. So I have both those, a 14-karat Brandon and a 24-karat Muramatsu. And these days you see flutes in silver or silver plated and um, I think other materials too. And also gold is is a big one. Does that affect the sound or the playing characteristics going from metal to metal? So I've talked to acousticians about this. And it's always a big thing. They say the material of the tube makes no difference. 
and I say hogwash because I can hear a difference and I can feel a difference and you can say what you want, but I disagree. So science and what I feel as a player seem not to be aligned. Well, what people should know is when you're a musician and you have an instrument and you're doing it every day for a living, it is literally an extension of you. You're singing through this instrument. Um, so even every little characteristic um, can, and I've experienced some of that in my um, myself as well, but I know for some brass players, they have their mouthpiece gold-plated. Um, and that's one, because some people have a bad reaction to silver or other metals are made out of, and some... Um, it's softer. And even though I guess it's, you know, it's micro, it's super thin, there is still a difference of feel and also just how it is on your mouth um, that can make a big difference. Yeah, it's funny, you know, even with uh, just a normal sort of flute that I have now, if you put even like a little sticker, some people put a little pad on where the thumb goes because it can get a little uncomfortable. Even those things make a difference. Like everything makes a difference. Good, bad, who's to say, but everything does make some difference. Uh, this, I've played silver flutes. I've played mostly gold flutes for my professional career. Uh, there are flutes, of course, made out of platinum. There are flutes made out of titanium. I've tried some uh, ceramic flutes. They'll try anything. Wow. Else. Can you give us an example of directly the sound between these two? Would they? They sound, I already know they sound different, but they also really look different. Maybe like a, a, a melody on one and then the other? Likely not, because my Baroque flute playing chops are not great, but I can play a simple scale on one. Yeah. <laughs> I can play a little scale on the Baroque flute, and then I'll play the same scale on on the, the modern flute. So really, to learn Baroque flute, it's, in a way, a totally different instrument. I recommend to my students that they really should learn to play Baroque flute, and I was practicing it for a while, but it's been some time since I've done it. So here is... Uh, just a couple notes on a broke flute, and then I'll play those same notes on the modern flute. All right. So you can hear the evenness of the bone flute. It also is quite different because this is pitched at 415. Uh, as many Baroque instruments are. It's and lower sounding. Flute, yeah, it's a lower sounding flute. And the modern flute is, this one's at 442. So the sound is very, very different. I mean, everyone's going to hear the difference between these two. And it's interesting how you said, um, which is, again, it's something that most people don't realize, from the modern flute to the Baroque flute, you're talking about, you know, not being a Baroque flute specialist. I mean, it's really, it's a totally different instrument. And there's many different instruments you know, other instruments in the orchestra that are in the same position, you have two that almost look the same, you know, in, in, in its essence, but they're completely different instruments. And the way you play them is very, very different. Yeah, absolutely. For really to play Baroque flute, you have to learn where each note is and each note has a different pitch. And yeah, it takes a whole, a whole, whole new set of skills. So when you're playing, um, I'm looking at your um, your embouchure, and I'm wondering something. When I if I pick up a trumpet and I'm playing it, I'm buzzing. I'm making the note with my lips. I'm using the valves to um, really play in tune. I mean, your your lips make the note. Your valves um, help out with the the rest. When you have the flute, you have your fingers moving on the um, the pads and the keys. I'm wondering, does your embouchure is it, it's more than just literally blowing across a hole? I, I would assume, right? Well, your embouchure is doing very subtle things from note to note or register to register. 
Yeah, absolutely. Though, even when I think about it myself and when I'm when I'm teaching, really the thing that plays the instrument is our air, right? The lips are kind of the last thing that happens. So if you can think of your lips just sort of like the icing on the cake and not the cake. So you play the flute with, with your air. There's different air pressure that you use. There's different air speeds that you use. And really the lips are there to provide... Uh, the little aperture, it's the tiny little bit right in the very center of your lips that you use. The idea is not to use any of the corners of the lips, just really in the very center. So you can change direction. You can blow up a little more if you want something, a sound that's a little cloudier and wispier. You can blow down into the flute a little more if you want to make something that sounds like dark chocolate. Like you the can... direction of the airstream. Basically. That's how I think about it. So the, the lips there are really for color and making the nuance but not actually making the sound. Can you show us that difference in like blowing the air down or versus up and the, the difference in sound? Sure. So this will be, um, <clears throat> I'll play perhaps the beginning of Debussy's Afternoon of a Fawn. Perfect. And I'll go from something which is what I consider maybe bright yellow to something that's kind of dark purple. You can sort of hear the difference between blowing up out of the flute some more and then going down into it gets a little grittier, a little thicker mm -hmm. in the sound. So, of course, that's a very familiar tune to, I think, uh, most people listening. But what are some other kind of iconic examples of flute excerpts in the orchestra? Well, I think some of the best examples are from the French repertoire. I think of the amazing solo from Daphnis and Chloe of Ravel. Uh, we also have some amazing... Solos in the Brahms symphonies, I think of the really devastating solo from the Brahms Fourth Symphony is really quite spectacular. Shostakovich and Prokofiev were also really great writers for the flute. We have some very, uh, really colorful solos. Especially for the piccolo in Shostakovich. Oh, absolutely. For the whole flute family, yeah. And so I see you've also brought some music here because there's those big examples that everyone knows. But what, what about some flute music that people should be listening to but... It's not on their radar. So I brought some music here by written by Jake Heggie. I think he's really a spectacular living composer. Uh, if people haven't heard of him, they should go out and listen listen to some some of his music whenever they can. Uh, this is a piece which was taken from a larger work of his. It was from a song which he uh, later wrote for flute. Uh, this is some of Jake Heggie's soliloquy. Oh, that's beautiful. It sounds also kind of, you know, it sounds, well, very, very song-like and introspective, too, at the same time. Yeah, I mean, the flute is really so close to the human voice, the way we use our air. There's nothing between us, our air, and the sound, I think, is really very, very close to the human voice. And what else do we have here? Uh, so I also brought, just for fun, uh, this is a favorite piece of mine that uh, is written for solo flute by Engolf Dahl. Uh, I'll play... The theme, this is a 
from a set of variations he wrote on a Swedish folk tune. love it. I almost don't want you to stop. It's so great. Um, so before you were talking about different colors with the uh, the Debussy Afternoon of a Fawn, um, dark purple we heard in there, are these, are you also thinking about kinds of colors in music like this? Absolutely. Uh, I feel like it's something I'm always doing. I'm always trying to manipulate the sound, move the sound, make some triangles, some squares, some loop-de-loops. Uh, for me, it's the, that's the process of creating music as oh. I play. And so speaking of colors, we have many more flutes here on this table. Um, what else do we have here? So I also brought an alto flute, which is lower than the C flute. This is an alto flute in G. And I also brought a bass flute, which is an octave lower than the C flute. Have you ever had to use these playing in the NSO? So the alto flute is called for quite a bit. Well, I Quite a bit is an exaggeration. Quite a bit for what the instrument <laughs> for an alto is. Flute, yeah. Yes, uh, really, some of the most uh, famous pieces that people would think about that have alto flute are, are the Ravel, Daphnis, and Chloe, which has a big alto flute part. Also, Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. You'll hear some alto flute in that, but it's not often. It's not often. <laughs> not often. What well, can we uh, hear? How it sounds? Yeah. So this is an alto flute. It's a very different sound. It's um, it's like warmer and it's it's like wider sounding as well. Absolutely. Uh, I always feel it's nice to play the alto flutes, take a nice warm bath. You sit back, you relax. It's comfortable. So uh, the bass flute, though, is that even more. So okay. the bass flute even lower. Uh, I'll give you a sense of how low this can go. And it's such a big flute, it's actually kind of bent back on itself. Yeah, or else it I guess wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to play. Yeah, it wouldn't be possible to play. So the bass flute has a big curve in it so that the the embouchure plate is sort of on top of the instrument instead of on the side. Uh, yeah, you really wouldn't be able to play it otherwise. Ooh. It's almost like a spooky kind of kind of sound as well. So when this, have you ever had to play this bass flute in the orchestra? So the only time I've ever seen this called for is in music of John Williams. Oh, okay. So some of the movie music he wrote for bass flute. But I've been waiting. I think composers should really utilize the bass flute more than they do. There are some contemporary composers who are using it, but we don't. It doesn't come up that often. So. And I guess the next lowest one down, which I think there's only there's very few of them made, is the contrabass flute. That would that even fit in this room? So the contrabass would fit, though. Uh, so there are actually many other flutes. There's again the contra alto flute, which is an octave lower than the alto flute. And then there's the bass flute. There's the sub contra. There's a double contra, which is even bigger than the sub contra. Those 
Uh, well, it might have a hard time fitting in this yeah. room. The contra would be okay. And we'll have pictures of, of all of these instruments and uh, some examples on the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. From thousands of years ago to the to the Baroque flute to the modern flute, I'm wondering in, in the typical orchestra, how many flutes are in this section? So the NSO has a four-person flute section. Uh, there's a, an, a principal, an assistant principal, a second, and a piccolo player, which is very typical for the American orchestra. So I'm wondering as principal and having an assistant, what is that like? What What is happening? So in the flute section and most of the other wind sections, the way we do it is that we split the principal duties. So for example, this week, the assistant principal is playing the first half of the concert, which is an overture and a concerto. And then I will play the second half of the concert, which is really a very typical way that assistants and principals work in the wind section of an orchestra. Okay. Well, that's good. It gives you, it lets you be focused on, you know, the big task at hand, not one person trying to do the whole thing. Exactly. And really playing uh, the principal position in a major orchestra, we have repertoire coming every week. And I think to give it its real due, we need to spend quite a bit of time asking ourselves, what is it that we're saying with this music? And having the ability to take the time to delve really deeply into the solos that we have to play and even the 2D sections, but especially in the solos, I think it's an important thing and it makes the product better. I'm wondering if flute players are sick of sounding like birds. Because when you think of other, you know, there's every instrument has a stereotype, too, but you know, the oompa thing. Um, and, you know, we're sick of it for the most part. But what about flutes? What is the, is there a characteristic that's just like well, annoying I, at this point? I would say I would be lying if I didn't oftentimes listen to the stunningly gorgeous oboe melodies that they get their solos to be. They get to play some of the most beautiful music in the orchestral repertoire. And here we are going up and down in gymnastics. So I wouldn't lie. They really get the beautiful tunes. Uh, yeah, the flute oftentimes, even this week in the concerts we're doing, the Tchaikovsky, uh, Sleeping Beauty, Bluebird. And of course, here we are doing all these gymnastics, but it's a role. We embrace it and we do the best we can. I have two colleagues, Sandra and Nick, that I love to go to for musical questions because Sandra, she played, I think, violin when she was in middle school or high school. And she's really into ballet. She dances ballet. So she has this uh, an affinity for music and she knows a bit. And then um, also Nick, he, this is his own um, description, knows nothing about classical music. So I like to go to them for some questions to see if there's things that I'm, I'm missing. Sandra had a question, and I'm wondering if you have some idea about this. She said, when I was in elementary school and kids were picking out which instrument to play, all the girls wanted to play the flute, but it was restricted to above average students. Is it really that much harder to play the flute, or was that just my school's way of narrowing the field? Can you tell that I'm bitter I was not picked to play the flute? I have I have no response to that. <laughs> I don't know. It's a great story. I love that story. I, I wouldn't say there's anything more or less complicated about the flute. Uh, we don't have to deal with reeds. That's a big thing. So that makes it in a lot of ways much easier. And we don't have the the um, like the brass players who get a lot of fatigue in the muscles. We don't have that either. So okay. in a way, I feel like the flute has a lot going for it. Yeah. I think that's true. Um, I'm sure that makes Sandra feel worse, but sorry, any answer is better sorry, than no Sandra. answer. <laughs> it's never too late. Um, so if someone is looking to get into the flute or buy a flute, what should they look for? 
Ooh, so uh, that is a good question depending on where they are in their development and where they are in their education. I've always been a strong believer in getting the nicest instrument that you can at whatever level you're playing at. So I was very fortunate to get my first professional flute when I was at the end of my sophomore year in high school. And was I ready for that flute? Absolutely not. Uh, But I think playing that flute made me a better flutist. I will often pick up some student instruments and I'll try them and I say, man, I don't know how you even get a sound out of these things. So you can end up with some bad habits. So whatever instrument you can afford or whatever it is that you're looking at, I would say get the the nicest one that you can. It'll create better habits in the long run. And that's something probably if you want to learn flute, find a private teacher and they can help guide you to what's best for you. Absolutely. So I have a question. I I actually have something here. Oh, my. Uh, Yeah. I'm wondering... This is straight off of uh, Amazon. <laughs> it's my uh, flute. It is, uh, I don't know what color this is. I think it's that. red. It's very shiny. Um, I don't know how to play it. You got a flute lesson, huh? <laughs> that's, all, that's all I know. But um, Okay, look at that. I got to bring that for one of our 4th uh, of July concerts out, on the, out of the Capitol. Do you want to play my Amazon flute? Boy, do I ever want to play your Amazon <laughs> flute. <laughs> do you actually? I'd love yeah. to try it. Let's see what this thing sounds like. You can tell me if I put it together correctly. Yeah, it's close enough. Let's see. Glory, they're not kidding. Okay. Bright red. I'm going to borrow this. not the best but it works good enough for um a pops concert outside exactly but maybe you want to speak with a teacher first before going to amazon don't just buy it online just don't buy it online okay next i want to talk about your life and your journey as a musician but first let's take a break classical breakdown is made possible by classical weta Join us for the music anytime, day or night. To listen live, just go to our website, classicalweta.org, or download our app. It's free in the App Store. So how did you get your first start in music? So I began taking flute lessons when I was seven years old. I, in fact, wanted to start when I was six, but I was too small to reach the end of the flute. And I remember going to the local flute teacher every couple months to see if she thought I was... Yeah, my arms were long enough to start playing. And finally she said you could start. I was so excited. I'd been waiting months for this. And the first thing we do is we take off the head joint and we just play the head joint, which is basically, I don't know, not even a foot long. And she had me go and do that for a week. And I was so upset. I mean, I could have been doing this for months, but that was my beginning with the flute. And in our local school, most kids didn't start band instruments until third grade. Or was it fourth grade? Whatever it was, I started a year earlier. So I was led into the band earlier. And all throughout grade school, I was just the most advanced because I had had a whole extra year in it. And I think for me as a kid, somehow being the good one at it kept me into it. I just kept doing it because I was just sort of more advanced. Now that all changed in high school. It doesn't stay like that. You can be advanced as a kid and then everyone catches up and then all of a sudden you're not yep. there anymore. So I did... Playing the local youth orchestra, I grew up outside Boston, and I played in the Greater Boston Youth Symphony Orchestra. I got in my junior year, 
By the time my junior year ended, the conductor of said youth orchestra thought I was no good and he wanted to kick me out. So, Oh, my gosh. No one had to re-audition except for me. He made me re-audition. I think maybe he made another trumpet player re-audition. Uh, he didn't like either of us. We are both now principals in some big American orchestras, so uh, it's okay that he tried to kick me out. But uh, there was that. And I remember thinking my senior year when I was trying to figure out where I was going to end up and what I was going to do with my life, I applied to some regular music. I mean, I applied to some music schools. I applied to some regular universities as well. And I thought, hey, if I get into music school, I like doing this. Let's just see how long I can do it. I'll just keep doing it until I can't do it anymore, until someone says no. Though when I was auditioning, I went to a one of the major American conservatories my senior year of high school, and I played for the teacher before the auditions, you know, take a lesson to see how we'd go. And said teacher said to me, you need to find something else to do. You will never have a career in music. Oh, my gosh. So, But I took that. I said, well, okay, that's your opinion. Let's just see what happens. So I was accepted into Eastman. I went to Eastman. I studied for four years with Bonnie Boyd who was a fantastic teacher and really instilled in me a great love of music making. There can be a danger when you're learning an instrument that we get so caught up in the technical stuff. But my my life goal when I left Eastman was to be able to play a musical phrase. Like if I could play one phrase of music and actually touch someone and make it meaningful for them, then I've arrived. And I really, I put that on Bonnie. I mean, she really instilled that idea of musicianship being the pinnacle. So I took that with me. Well, that's amazing. You were six years old and you knew you, knew you wanted to play the flute. When you said your arms were too short to reach the end of the instrument, what do you mean? Because when I think of the flute, it's like your arms are close to your body, but it didn't go, or your fingers didn't reach? Yeah, like I couldn't reach the, uh, I mean, I, now it's easy. The flute seems small, but I, maybe I was a small six-year-old, but I, I couldn't reach. Nowadays, they actually have these flutes for beginners with a curved head joint so that your arms can be closer to your body. Because really, to play the flute, you have to get not only your right hand all the way down the, the tube, but you have to be able to use your pinky on those lower uh, keys as well. So. That's usually something you think about with trombone, because you have to push your arm out, and kids can't, you know, a lot of times can't get, get their whole arm out. But what, you had such a passion for it as, such a, as a young child. What was it that attracted you to the flute? Was there like a, something you saw or heard? I have no idea. I don't know. I was six. I don't I don't remember. And then I think like, well, what does a six-year-old even know? I don't know. I must have heard it somewhere. I have no memory of it. So it was something I think my one of my great aunts had a flute and I think I saw it or she played it for me. I sort of have a vague memory of that. And they would come, the older kids would come to the elementary school and demonstrate the instruments. So somehow something attracted me. That might have been, that for me, that was it the high school kids coming to the middle school and playing in the elementary school, playing a little concert. So starting from this early age, taking lessons, going to Eastman, one of the best music schools in the country. Um, what happens after that, after you graduate with your bachelor's? So I finished my bachelor's degree and I was enrolled for my master's degree at NEC. I was going to stud- study with Paula Robeson, who's a big dream of mine. I, mean, I love Paula. She's an amazing artist. And a week into my master's, I won a one-year position in the Greater Lansing Symphony. So I left school to play for the year in Greater Lansing. It wasn't a huge job, but for me, I wanted to feel like I was playing. I was professional. I was, you know, out there doing it. So I 
left school. It wasn't an easy decision, but because uh, I felt really Paul had a lot to give me. But I decided I was going to try it, be a professional, see what happens. And that year, because it was only a one-year position, I took every possible audition I could so as not to go back to school. I said, I like being out here. I like making a living doing the flute. So I took I don't even know how many auditions and failed at all of them until the very last one, which is late in June, was the Orlando Philharmonic. So I won a principal position there in the Orlando Philharmonic and stayed there for six years taking auditions and was there until I came to D.C. Orlando's a great town. Oh, it's great. I've, I've played there. I've worked there. And there's a lot of amazing musicians down in Florida, especially at that time with um, all the musicians working at Disney. Um, it was really, that's a hotbed for, for music. Yeah, no, the orchestra was great. My colleagues were great. I learned so much. I mean, I feel like that was my master's and doctorate and all of those things. It was my education in how to play an orchestra. It happened down there. And after six years, you um, got to the NSO. Yeah, so I won assistant principal in the NSO. It was... 2006. So I moved up here and I played assistant for many years until Toshika retired. And I took the audition here for principal in whatever it was, I don't know, 20 something ish, six mm-hmm. years later, 2011, 2012. And I will say I've taken many auditions through my time and any musician will tell you taking auditions is not easy. My audition for principal in the NSO is by far the most difficult audition I've ever taken. Really? So there's something about playing for your colleagues and like standing up there in front of them. Usually when you go to an audition, it's screened, it's blind, no one knows who you are. If you bomb, I don't know, you go with your tail between your legs, but you just go home and no one knows it was you. But I knew I was going to have to stand up there in front of everyone and say, hey, this is what I can do. And uh, Christoph Eschenbach was our music director at the time, and I... Never thought I could walk into that job. Like, I never thought it was my job. But I found out two weeks before the audition that he had, as is allowed in our contract, invited someone directly to the finals. And this was someone that he'd known for a long time, and they've worked together a lot. And I had spent many months preparing for the audition. And when I found out, I said, I know he doesn't want me. Like, that was my thought. My thought was, I know know he wouldn't hire me. That was the only thing I... Like it was going through my head. And I wasn't going to take the audition. I was like, screw it. I'm not doing it. I stopped practicing for a bit. Uh, and then, you know, I was talking it over. And I said, you know what? I put in all this work. I'm not going to win the job. At least I can go in there. I can play well for my colleagues. The job's not mine anyway, but I'll show them what I can do. So I, in a way, knowing that he didn't want me helped me relax and go into the audition without any expectations or with fewer expectations, I should say. And, yeah, I was fortunate to have won the job. Wow. A lot of people don't realize just what goes into, one, preparing for an audition, and then, you know, the thousands of hours, and then your 10 minutes, um, especially if you're going round by round. Um, Just so people know, there's, when you go to take an audition, there's, you know, there's prelims. Uh, That's when, you know, everyone, in a sense, is that's when everyone's, you play for the committee. Um, Then there's, like, semifinals. And then finals. Sometimes there's like a super finals playing with a section. I don't know. I assume it's also like that with little ones. You do, sometimes you do section stuff. In an yeah, audition. though typically not for principal auditions, though it happens for principal auditions too. For my audition for principal, it, there was no ensemble playing. And as a member of the orchestra, I was put directly in the finals. That's in our contract. And at the time, we did not have 
blind finals. Now we have a new contract, and now all of the finals of the orchestra are also behind a screen. So, you No one knows who it is until it's done. Until it's done. Uh, that was not the case when I took the audition, but things change. So. Wow. So it wasn't difficult. This audition was the most difficult, not because of the rep or the, you know, what was required. It was that, you know, you are playing for your colleagues, people you've been playing with for a while. Um, and that's that can be a lot more nerve wracking. Yeah, it's all, you know, the success of auditions, it's all in the mind anyway. And in any performing thing that you do, it's all yeah. in the mind. But in auditions, it's especially important what's going on psychologically. And that was a tough one. <laughs> So how many auditions, what audition number was NSO, your, your first assistant job? It's a good question. I stopped counting. And after too many, I stopped counting. So, But probably at least 30? I would say the number is, about, is around there, yeah, probably high 20s. And it's not you sending in a, you know, a resume and then getting rejected. It is preparing for an audition, um, going to a new city, you know, getting a hotel, doing the whole thing, and then going and playing. Um, sometimes, you know, you play two excerpts and it, the audition committee says, all right, thank you. Oh, it has happened many, many times. And actually, well, the, one of the hardest things, and I, and I advise people, I said, look, if you're taking audition like the one of the most, like the most critical things, if you want to really win a job, is you have to be able to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and keep going. Because really, you end up hitting yourself against the wall too many times, and you fall over, and eventually you don't get up, and then you don't win a job. But if you are able and willing to keep at it, you can hopefully, in time, actually figure out what you need to do in the audition, figure out how you need to prepare for the audition, and go in and, and win a job. Was there ever a time after audition 20-something where you felt like, you know, I don't feel like getting up this time? or After every one, after every single one. And I would give myself. So usually on the plane, I, rem I remember this so vividly, we'd go, I'd get on the plane and I'd be so focused and I'd be thinking about the excerpts and I'd be looking through the music and I'd be listening and doing all this stuff. And after I would be either cut from whatever round it was on the plane back, I'd pick up some magazine at the airport and I'd read about all the amazing things that people are doing in this world, like saving rainforest, whatever. And I'd think, what am I doing with my life? Should I go out there and help people and do something more meaningful? But I would give myself just a little bit of time to wallow in my own self-pity and then say, okay, let's keep going. We got to do some more. That's a good attitude. Uh, you know, no matter what, give yourself some time. You need that. But then, you know, get back on. What has been your, I guess, on the same topic, what's been like your biggest struggle in, in, uh, in something in music or in, in playing in general? It's a great question. And I feel as a musician, as an artist, really, our, our main thing that we do is to question and to search and look for answers and look for deeper meaning. And that to me is a constant struggle. It's something that I never feel like I have the answer to, which I feel is good. I feel like that's kind of the, the role and the purpose. So uh, if it ever becomes easy, if it ever becomes something that I feel like I can just get up and do, then I think it might be time for me to leave. So uh, I know there are some musicians out there who say, oh, it's just easy to walk right in and do whatever. That's never been me. And uh, I, I have, in a way, you know, you, you asked me about my flute, and I'm playing sort of a hybrid flute at the moment, two different kinds of flutes that I put together. Part of this is I, I never play on any one instrument for too long, and I'm sort of always mixing things up because I'm afraid that once you get too used to an instrument, you will end up only playing in the way that's easiest for that instrument to play. And 
once you get too comfortable, you don't end up looking for really what is the most important thing in the music, and you do what is easiest on the instrument. So I've probably gone at the longest two and a half years on one okay. single instrument. And then I'll ask myself, so what else am I going to try? What else do I move to? And I'll often pick something that I don't like the sound of to figure it out and try to make it sound good. So you want to prevent a situation where you have a solo and you have this one line. You'd like to play it a certain way, but it's going to be more difficult with the mechanics of the instrument or whatever. And you don't want to slip into, well, I'm just going to do it this way. Who's going to notice, right? And that's something you want to, it sounds like that's kind of the situation you want to avoid. Yeah, if it ever becomes sort of rote, if it ever becomes yeah. regular, I I don't want to do it. So it makes life a little more difficult. And sometimes uh, I feel like I'm shooting myself in the foot a bit. But I don't know. I feel like it's an important thing to do, both for my own artistic integrity and for the audience to give them something that they wouldn't otherwise hear. That's just what I try. Well, it's important to change things up and to stay to stay grounded and always, you know, know what your mission is, not to just do what's easiest, what's rote, but to serve the music. Uh, so last, I think it was last year you played Mozart's double concerto with um, harp and orchestra. What's it like to be all of a sudden at the front of the stage with the NSO? Because I assume that's not something that gets to happen very often um, with the orchestra. No, but it's great fun now. Since I've been principal, I've done two concertos with the orchestra. I did Mozart D major a number of years ago, and then the Mozart flute and harp with Adriana. It's great fun. I love it. It's uh, it's a totally different thing standing up there. One of the things that's nice is when you're up at the lip of the stage, the acoustics are so different. And usually where we're sitting, you don't hear a lot of the hall coming back to you just the way the acoustics are. And it can often feel like we're sending our sound out and it just goes out into the ether and hopefully it gets to the back. But when you're standing up at the lip, you get a little more back. And it, I don't know, I've enjoyed both experiences very much. I can imagine that could be enjoyable or a little nerve-wracking. Uh, All of a sudden yeah. the sound is... You know, you're hearing it um, different than you're used to. So how do you prepare for a concert? Let's maybe say a typical orchestra concert. What's that preparation like? Is it a week out, two weeks out? You know, at the beginning of the season, you're looking at what's coming up? So I'll usually look at the season announcement and see, first, what are the things that I don't know at all? What are the things that are completely new to me? Uh, And I'll usually try to get the parts to those just to see. I'll start listening to it uh, to get to know the part, like the orchestral part I will also then, you know, for the things that I do know that I know have big parts, I'll take those out of my, I've got a library with some, with a lot of orchestral music, so I'll take those out and make a stack of them. So even if there's something coming up, say, at the end of the season, I'll kind of put it into rotation in my practice and think about, hey, how am I going to look at this, even though it's a solo maybe that I've done many times and I have an idea about how I want, how I want it to go. I'll look at it, hopefully with new eyes, and, and see what is it this time that it means to me. So I have some rapid-fire questions, okay. and you just answer whatever the first thing you can the, that you think of. A, a bunch of these were actually um, from Nick, who I mentioned before. He asked his family. His daughter actually played the, the flute a little bit. I don't think so anymore. But um, some questions uh, are, are from, from them as well. So rapid-fire. Okay, I'm ready. Favorite composer to play? Ravel. Favorite piece to play? Whatever I'm playing that week. I know it's a cutback, but I feel like it's a necessity. What is your least favorite composer to play? Oy. I feel like, again, I shouldn't have one because we have to be fully committed to everything we play. Oh, that's another cop-out answer. Sorry. You can com- you can be committed and hate something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, is there a certain piece that you don't like to play? You'll still play with full artistic integrity, but is there something you, you would be okay not playing again? So here's a good example of this. So Mahler, I love Mahler. I think Mahler is amazing and it's like nothing else, like no other composer. I do find that end of, at the end of a week playing Mahler, I need a break. Like it just takes too much. And I love it, but it's also exhausting. Mentally and physically. Exactly. Most memorable moment in music. Gosh, well, this is memorable because it was just so crazy. We did the final Alice when Leonard Slacken was in the was our music director. This was one of my first years in the orchestra, and Hilla Plitman was singing this part. And she took a megaphone and screamed into the megaphone, into the microphone. I was just mind blowing. I was insane. Favorite thing to do after a concert? Go home and go to bed. Yeah. And what's your favorite example of the flute outside of the orchestra, something like in rap or rock? Well, I got to say Lizzo is amazing. She's a huge inspiration, and I would love to meet Lizzo. Lizzo, if you're listening, I'd love to meet you. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, and she's a reason why I understand that all of these kids now are like, they're seeing her play the flute, and they're like, I got to play the flute. It's amazing. Do you have a favorite note or key to play in? My favorite note on the flute is D. I like it because I can put all my fingers down and the whole tube is vibrating. I love it. Now, is there a crazy or just funny moment that's happened to you in, in, in music? Sometimes it's in the travel. Sometimes it's in the concert or a rehearsal. Hmm, let's see. Actually, a little while ago, I was playing a solo with the Woodbridge Flute Choir, and I was doing the Carmen Fantasy, and it was a big, flashy flute piece, and... I'm doing this big run-up to a very pianissimo, very soft high A at the top of the range of the flute. And the, right when I get there, the instant I get there, all the lights in the theater just shut off. It was incredible. And we were all just like standing there. I was just holding this note thing. Well, what's going to happen next? It didn't last that long. The lights came back on and we finished. But I thought maybe I had done something. <laughs> shut the lights off. You, your playing affected the whole building <laughs> and shut everything down. Yeah. But it was you just sustained that note, and eventually the lights came back. I just on. held it and waited. The lights, fortunately, came on pretty quickly. But is there anything else that you want to talk about with the flute in general, or or just your experience of being a professional musician? Well, I would say, I mean, my I'd say the flute has brought me places that I never thought it would. I was never one of those people growing up who thought, yeah, for sure, I was going to be the one sitting principal in an orchestra like the NSO. And I'm thankful every day I wake up and go to work and get to play the flute. Like I said, when I was a kid, I just said, hey, I'll do this as long as I can. And here I am still doing it. So I say, if you want to play the flute and you like to play the flute, keep doing it. Do it as long as you can. And you can just do it your whole life. Great. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you coming and telling us all about the flute. Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. For more information on things we talked about in this episode, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. And if you have any comments or ideas for episodes, send me an email at classicalbreakdown at weta.org. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from Classical WETA.